If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf, and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess a podcast dedicated to giving you simple and scientifically backed tips and techniques to help you take back control of your mental, physical, and emotional health. Get ready for a really interesting podcast today because in this podcast, I interview licensed psychologist, best-selling author, professor of psychology, distinguished international speaker, and workplace consultant, Dr. Romani Dervusala on narcissism, dealing with a narcissist, psychopaths, why we are so fascinated with stories about psychopaths like Dirty John, the dangerous culture of entitlement, how narcissism and entitlement are making the new COVID-19 pandemic worse, and so much more. The focus of Dr. Dervisala's clinical, academic, and consultative work is the etiology and impact of narcissism and high-conflict, entitled, antagonistic personality styles on human relationships, mental health, and societal expectations. She has spoken on these issues to clinicians, educators, and researchers around the world. Her work has been featured at SXSW, TEDx, and on a wide range of media platforms, including Red Table Talk, The Today Show, Oxygen, Investigation Discovery, Bravo, and she is a featured expert on the digital media mental health platform, Med Circle. She is on a mission to demystify and dismantle the toxic influence of narcissism on all of our lives and is considered one of the foremost experts on the topic of narcissism, psychopaths, and sociopaths. If you enjoy my podcast, I would really appreciate you leaving a five-star review and subscribing to my podcast and share episodes and this podcast with friends and family because let's be honest, we all know someone who needs help with their mental health. One last thing before we begin. If you would like to receive text messages from me with mental health tips, exclusive content, insider access to sales and events and more, just text Dr. Leaf to 833-285-3747. The details will also be in the show notes. And now on to today's episode. Dr. Womany, I am so excited to interview you today, to have you on the show with me. It's just wonderful. Your work is so important and so timely, and you have an incredible way of explaining a topic that is kind of on everyone's mind. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so grateful. It's my honor. Well, before we start, can you just introduce yourself to my audience and tell me tell them a little bit about you and what motivates you and maybe a little tidbit of what's not in your biography and mm -hmm. love to know yeah. a little bit about you. My name is Dr. Romani Dravasala, though most people in places like YouTube and everywhere else know me as Dr. Romani. I am a professor of psychology and have been a professor for over 20 years at California State University, Los Angeles. I'm also a psychologist in private practice in Los Angeles, in Santa Monica, and in Sherman Oaks, California. I've written two books on narcissism and narcissistic relationships. I have a YouTube channel. We're just about to hit about 250,000 subscribers on that. gets millions of hits a month on all things related to narcissism. And I, I know my first book was actually on health and wellness, but then I really expanded into the narcissism space. And, you know, and I'm involved in professional activities of all kinds. I'm in, involved in the professional activities with the American Psychological Association. I work with a group of clinicians on the Narcissistic Abuse Awareness Alliance. And so, you know, different ways that I'm trying to get the message out there, not just of, about narcissism and narcissistic relationships, but just 
just about mental health as well. And then I'm also an expert contributor to MedCircle, which is a digital mental health platform, which has really been doing a tremendous job in providing education videos on a variety of topics, including narcissism, to people around the world. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, thank you for all that great work that you do. It's really fantastic. Just before we started, we were just saying how timely this topic is. And you said, you answered me and said that this has been in your head for 20 years and you just look around you now and there's just pick up from that, just how this is such a relevant topic to today. And I think it's very much linked to our very individualistic culture that we live in instead of our collectivistic type culture that we should be living in. And I'd love you to pick up from there. It's, this has been one of those things where when I originally started working on it, I actually got interested in what I call, let's even take the word narcissism out of it. I got interested in high conflict, antagonistic, dysregulated personalities. So these are people who are always gunning for a fight, who are never able to keep their emotions under control, who don't have empathy for other people, who think only their feelings and experiences matter. And that took in a bit more territory than narcissism. And I got really interested in those personality styles and particularly how they interacted with healthcare providers because they really made healthcare providers, nurses, physicians, physician assistants, even the receptionist lives miserable. And then I thought, oh, if that's happening, then they're probably also not doing other things for their health and they might be a high-risk patient group. But at the same time, though, I was also seeing in my private practice, more and more people were coming into therapy, always telling me the same thing. This person doesn't listen. They completely devalue me. I constantly feel invalidated. And, And what was happening at that point is this word narcissism is an old word and it's a new word. As early as the earlier parts of the 20th century, people like Otto Rank and Sigmund Freud, who were psychoanalytic theorists, were using this word, okay? It was a sort of form of pathological self-love. Time goes on, and I actually think people almost got distracted from this. History happened, and then we keep marching forward. It wasn't even until the 1970s that this word narcissistic personality disorder even showed up in the DSM. And then what happened was... I have to tell you that a couple of interesting social things happen. Reality television and this fascination with the lives of other people who were behaving in a way that normal human beings don't behave, social media where everyone was engaging in really pathological attention-seeking, and then this shift in our history of worshiping and venerating billionaires, celebrities, celebrity athletes, There was a time we used to name buildings for scientists and scholars. Now we name buildings for the biggest donor and corporations. The world changed. We became much more consumerist. People were measured on the basis of the bag they carried or the shoes they wore. Now, all of that said, all of that said, you can have somebody who loves wearing the most high fashion, who has made a lot of money. And they may still be empathic, kind, and compassionate. So all that other stuff, social media and everything, does not mean somebody's narcissistic. Narcissism is still this core core set of issues you can see in rich or poor, any race, any nationality, any gender. There's no, it doesn't, it's it's in anyone, in everyone. It It doesn't discriminate on that basis. But I think there were trends in society that led us to enable the narcissist. Basically, so we let them get away with it. And now they run the show. They're, they're running the whole circus. They're the people we constantly see in the media. They're the people's who have opinions we hear. And when society kept valuing them and enabling them, people started thinking, well, that's what society's saying is good. So maybe I'll get into a relationship with this person. And then you can see how it starts to turn dark. People would say, wow, I met this person and they're so great on paper. And then I started dating them. And this was one of the most emotionally abusive experiences I've ever had. Why? Because good on paper doesn't always mean kind and compassion. That is fascinating. So our society has kind of brought this out of the woodwork and enabled it. So it's enabled, it's it. enabled it and it's pockets. It doesn't mean, as you say, it's not everyone who no. is on social media, but it is a certain type of leaning towards that and, and if you're in, the, in that environment because environment plays such a massive role mm-hmm. and then you it's kind of like release that then mm-hmm. that's such an interesting history that you've traced there so I mean as a I mean you're a world-renowned expert when it comes to narcissism tell us more about you I mean you've written books on this and you've written articles on it 
talk a little bit more about the culture of entitlement and this because it, it, it kind of links into we've grown into that, haven't we? We've become a culture of entitlement. It's it's Very what this much. it's what this modern age has bred, and it doesn't have to be that way because there's so much great about the modern era. So in my my book, actually, don't you know who I am? The subtitle is how to stay sane in, er- in an era of narcissism, entitlement, and incivility. And I chose those th- three elements very you know, intentionally because the entitlement piece, this idea that somehow there are people out there who believe the rules don't pertain to them, that they deserve special treatment that nobody else gets, that they can make a ruckus and disrupt everybody's day so they can get what they want, and that their feelings should be put in front of everybody else's that is getting to be a relatively, you know, that growing number of people. And this is, you know, that, the reason I call the book, Don't You Know Who I Am? Once upon a time when we all still traveled and went to restaurants and all that, would be the people who would walk into a restaurant, see maybe there's a 45 minute wait and say, don't you know who I am? I'm so important. I should be seated right away. Or the person on the airplane who says, they say, oh, there's no more first class seat. Don't you know who I am? I always fly on your airline. I should be getting in first class. And I saw about 10 of those events in a one-year period. So I, do, I used to travel a lot. And then I thought, is this sort of like their secret kind of catchphrase motto in the world? Because, and why would we know who you are? And would we really care? And, and the funny thing is that celebrities say this, regular people say this, but this idea that I deserve special treatment, you know, one, I don't know how, you know, this is something that may not have made as much of an impact in other parts of the world. It certainly was a big news story at the time in the United States when a handful of very wealthy people decided to break all the rules to get their children into- Yes, I wanted to talk, you wrote a brilliant article on that. I wanted to talk about that, the myth of meritocracy. Yes, this, this, this was a great example of these people who truly, because of their money, and obviously their kids must have been a little bit dull, who truly believed that their kids should not have to play by the rules. That these rules, all those other kids could struggle to prepare for these tests or not be even able to prepare for them and go get the good grades and, and work hard and all of that. that. That's for everyone else's kids, but not for mine. And there, there was an example of even where you're going to see intergenerational entitlement, right? So the parents are communicating this to their kids why aren't the kids going to take that on? And then there it goes, generation to generation. So there's a great example of people who genuinely walk around and they talk a tough game, but they truly don't believe the rules apply to them. And entitlement often goes hand in hand with hypocrisy. One of the people who was found guilty in the scandal, she actually had the audacity to write a mothering blog. I think two of them did. Two of the people, they wrote I'm thinking, you know what? Stay, stay in your lane. Like if you're going to be entitled, please don't tell me how to mother my kids. And I happen to have kids at the, that, who are of the age applying to college. And I watch them, watch my daughter go through the agony of studying for the test, studying in school, getting the rejection letters. Like I watched her And the process of just applying. I've got four kids of myself that went through it. It's a huge process. It's a huge process. But it's and, part you know, of what you're supposed to do. Yeah. I didn't grease any skids. I said, you know, this is yours and I'll support, I'll be your emotional support and all of that, but this is yours to do, you know? And I think to myself and how many slots then you, how, how do you teach your children how to be ethical people when there are so many entitled people around there? And so I do think that this is a huge problem of people believing rules don't apply to them, but try to enforce them mercilessly for other people. I actually think it's a reason that this world is actually kind of falling apart right now. I mean, you want a rule, then hold everyone equally accountable to that rule. Done. Yeah, you can't have two standards. So it's almost like a, like a whole different standard. This is for me and that's for you. And you, that doesn't work because we're all human and we're all facing the same, you know, living in the same world. That just doesn't work like that. You also wrote another article and you've written so many good ones, but, but also related to this, I just want to pick the article up here. Very interesting on the guide to better relationships in terms of, what do you call this, entitlement, narcissism and the spread, the, the spread of the virus. I thought that was fascinating. So I wanted to pick on that article too, because if you think 
think of like these, there wasn't just one parent who did this, and those are the ones we know of. You also talk about in that other article, how many times has this happened from kindergarten all the way through getting into these schools and into the, what about in the work environment? So, you know, you, you, you selected one example, but that's, this is like a whole thing that's happening. And then you talked about coronavirus, and I, and I thought this is fascinating how you approached it, because there's been such a lot of, as you know, the conspiracy theories and people fighting against lockdown and, and not considering other people's, the government's not trying to be sadistically locking us up, but it's actually trying to control people getting sick. Can you talk about that article? Because I think it's another example. Conspiracy theories and narcissism, or people who believe in conspiracy theories and narcissism do tend to be a little bit correlated. Because when you think about it, there's an arrogance, there's an audacity, a sense of, I know better than science. I know better than people who've been working on these fields for years. You know, like this is a person who barely finished high school and they're trying to expound on epidemiology. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, no. And so in conspiracy theories, there's very much, you got to remember people who are narcissistic tend to be very, very sensitive to the point of almost being paranoid. What are conspiracy theories? They're very, very paranoid. There's a sense of victimhood in conspiracy theories. The government's out to get me. The aliens are out to get me. There's something out there. 5G is out to get me. Whatever it is that they play the victim. Victimhood is very much a part of narcissism as well. So this whole, and what we do see is that in fact, in the countries where you saw more people adhering to conspiracy theories, those countries tend to have worse spread of coronavirus. And those also tend to be countries that are led by very authoritarian, I'd say narcissistic leaders. And so all of these pieces are started, started fitting in. And when I wrote that article originally, it was before all of this really blew up. I think I wrote it back in March. And you were seeing a lot of what I was starting to see in the very beginning was that people were they were minimizing what the coronavirus threat was going to be. At the point I wrote that, we weren't even knowing. We were looking at two, three, four months of quarantine. And, you know, our life, we didn't know. It was in the beginning when I wrote it. Yeah. And, we, and, and interesting, sorry to interrupt you, but no, you mentioned about that the countries with the most authoritarian authoritarian leadership have had the worst outcome. I read that article, this thing was this morning or yesterday yeah, morning. Was there morning. was, yes, yes. I was so pleased you brought that up because I wanted to ask you about this. Okay. Yeah, I made all, because when you look at those leaders, the, the journalists wouldn't call them out. But when we look at these countries and how these leaders are behaving, they're very narcissistic. You know, they're entitled, unempathic, very arrogant, very brash. They're bullies. You know, they're, they're, they're narcissists. And so those are the countries having the worst outcomes. That doesn't surprise me. So then when you, you look out in the world at large, what is the most interesting to me to build off that article I wrote now is when you read about how coronavirus gets transmitted, wearing a mask actually does more to protect other people than it does to protect ourselves. Okay. Well, narcissistic people don't care about other people. So why would they wear a mask? If they walk around saying, I'm too young to get that sick. I actually think this is a conspiracy. I don't care. I'm not going to let the government control me. So victimhood and all that, that, that sort of strange ideation, they don't care that they're going to get someone else sick. So they're not going to wear a mask. And that right there to wit is why in this country, we are not going to see this go away because we do have too many people out there that why should I do something that helps someone else? Why should I wear a mask to help someone else? Why should I give my place in line if, I have, if they have only one item to someone else? This is my place. This is mine, mine, mine. That's a very narcissistic ideation. And it's interesting people aren't saying it through that lens because knowing what I know about narcissism, the first thing I've said to my colleagues and my staff is we're in big trouble. This is absolutely fascinating. I mean, it makes so much logical sense because if you think of those, I mean, the churches that are wanting to open, for example, and demanding this is freedom of speech and we've, this is an essential service, that is just not caring about all the other people that are going to be infected. That is so dangerous. That's totally narcissistic. It's me, myself, and I. There's that research out of Berkeley, Berkeley University where they spoke about the more times you say I, me, and my in a year, you increase your chance of getting cardiac issues within by 42% in the next 12 months. I mean, maybe we should be telling people, you know, this should be making people aware that we're not designed for me, myself, and I. But just that whole thing of people coming together and thinking, I don't care about the mass. I don't care. We're going to come together. That's not just their group. That is all the people that they infect on a two, one to two and a half. Every four, everyone, it's two and a half that get infected. Very much so. And so people, people are, they, they minimize it. So in other words, one thing I've been seeing in a lot of relationships was that one person would be much more worried about getting infected, getting other people infected, staying healthy. 
and their partner would say, you're being ridiculous. It isn't that big a deal. I'm not wearing a mask. I'm not going to clean the groceries. In other words, that person was gaslighting the other person. They were minimizing their reality. They were denying their reality. So these are the themes we're seeing throughout this. And because narcissism is taking such hold as sort of a societal pattern and entitlement and all of that, this idea that people will take an action to protect other people is a very naive way to be doing public health because the public health people need to understand you're not going to get buy-in on that, least of all in the United States. And so we've gotten to this place where each of us has to make a risk assessment for ourselves. I, for example, right now I'm caring for elderly parents and I, so I'm having to be more careful and having to make, you know, challenging decisions and all of that around that. Someone else may say, Nah, I don't have contact with elderly people. I kind of do my thing and, I, and it's fine, great. But that's where we're at because this idea that people are going to protect each other unless there's punishable laws, like if you don't wear a mask properly, you will face a fine or an arrest, then yes, maybe you would have that. But otherwise you cannot expect people to take responsibility. And that's where narcissism really throws a lot of public policy completely out of whack because these are the people who are never going to make a decision for the greater good. They're only going to make a decision for themselves, leaving more and more of us having to make decisions for ourselves because there's this unsafe world being created because nobody's actually you know, thinking what's for the greater good, like wearing a mask, even when it's sort of, it feels unnecessary. It is, unne- it, it is necessary. That, that's the fact is that it, it is, we are seeing that the research is showing that. And the other thing we know, for example, is that there was a very good article that I read a day or two ago on this, this idea of super spreading events, that there are events that are the, super, the events that will cause this to spread. And they're usually like family, large family gatherings where people are not wearing masks, grabbing each other's food, drinking from each other's cups and talking loudly. Other social events where people are talking loudly and are in proximity, usually indoors, that these super spreader events are going to be what leads to what we see more and more of the proliferation. And because there's this assumption, oh, I'm with my family, I'm not going to wear my mask, then you run into this problem. And also, you know, you know, Caroline, you raise an interesting issue of individualistic versus collectivist. Here's where it becomes an interesting conundrum. The collectivists aren't off the hook because one thing that collectivists do is they will often enable the narcissist in their midst So let's say you have a narcissistic patriarch in a family who is a kind of a bully and very authoritarian, and you're never supposed to say anything bad about your family. So he's able to rule the, or she, it could be a mother, one of them is able to rule the entire family system with an iron fist, and everyone, including cousins, aunts, and uncles, will cower to that person because they're collectivist and it is shameful to speak badly of your family. So if you talk to a lot of people from collectivist cultures, they'll say actually narcissism's really ruined their life because you they could not say anything against their parent because it was so forbidden. And yet the way that narcissistic parent kept their power was because collectivism requires that nobody ever says anything. Oh my goodness. So that's the neg- that's the negative side of that whole concept. So the whole thing we have to actually get it so it's not so much the collectivism, it's actually the community f- focus. Like that other study that was done where they spoke, they asked people in Japan what's the most important thing? And they said my role in the community and to support the community and to uplift the community when they asked the United States, it was me, myself and I. You know, so it's that's what we're talking about here is that what how do you see yourself in community as opposed to collectivism? It's more how you the impact on community and uplifting community. Yes, as long as that's accompanied by empathy, compassion, reciprocity, and mutuality. Because one could argue that in Japan, where there are very, very skewed gender roles, and women have to shoulder a tremendous burden of childcare, household, and work compared to men who don't have to do that, I have trouble not seeing that as a very sort of narcissistic structure where the men don't have empathy for what those women are enduring. So I don't even, I, I still think that there's a bigger problem everywhere than anyone thinks, that there's no easy out. We've got to have this compassion, empathy. We've got to be looking beyond ourselves. That's, and that's, do you think that that's naturally inside of us? I, th- I think it is, but it has to be cultivated. Okay, so the infant comes into the world only has need. It has to be. Human infants are actually some of the most vulnerable 
creatures to be born and they stay vulnerable for a very long time, right? So psychologically what's happening is that little infant almost doesn't understand there's a separation between it and these things that take care of it, namely its mother, it could be father, it could be other mother, whatever, but this primary caregivers, okay? That primary caregiver feeds them and holds them and changes them and, and soothes them. Okay. And the more that happens, the more safe that child feels. And if that happens consistently, year one, year two, year three, year four, and that child doesn't experience neglect or chaos or abuse or hyper distracted caregivers, good things can come out of that psychologically. And so this journey starts from the very beginning. Now, one of the most, I would say the most, not one of, I think the most critical tasks of a parent are twofold. Empathy for other people to be aware of what other people need, are feeling, are experiencing. And secondarily, this is also part of empathy, self-awareness about how your behavior or conduct could be impacting someone else. How do my words affect another? How do my gestures affect another? How is what I'm doing affecting someone else? That two-part structure, I need to attune myself to how are you doing, Caroline? But then Caroline, how am I doing in terms of am I being aware of how I might be impacting you? That is empathy. That, that whole idea of being self-reflective and caring about what other people think and feel, that is becoming more and more and more curtailed because parents aren't always teaching it. We're, everyone's distracted. You know, I understand we're overly reliant on technology now more than ever, but we've got to build in the empathy because it is, it, we need it everywhere. It's, and you can do empathy, mindful empathy throughout your day, whether it's back in the days when we actually left the house, how you infected with the person in the coffee shop who gave you your coffee, the person who rang up your groceries, the nurse who might have drawn your blood, the coworker who might have dropped something, every little interaction you have can be so tinged with so much empathy. Everyone, even if it's a momentary interaction. But I think so many people just completely minimize their human interactions. They view other people as objects and conveniences. And they just almost, you know, like they view them like I would this pen, like, oh, this is a nice pen. I'll use it. And then when I don't want it, I'm going to toss it aside. That, that idea of empathy building starts young. And I have to tell you, that kind of empathic structure kind of gets locked in probably by the time the child is in late elementary school or middle school. After that, if you haven't taught this to this kid, good luck. It's not going to be easy. What you have just said is so incredibly important, profound, and absolutely brilliant. And I so relate to that. You know, the work that I do, I've been in this mind-brain research now for 38 years, and I look at the whole intersection between the, the sort of a deep sort of spiritual nature, the non-conscious mind, and the physical brain, and the physiology. So the whole connection and how you can't separate and holistic and all that kind of stuff, and I clinic, practice clinically as well. And one of the things that has been paramount in my research and just finished a set of clinical trials, is this whole, one of the main things I taught all my patients was, and I, you know, it's so interesting, I literally had to teach them empathy. I literally oh. had to teach them self-regulation. One of the core underlying, if you read any of my books, I'll happily send you my books and the latest book that I've just written, the word self-regulation and self-awareness comes up throughout as a primary yeah. mind technique, mind management technique of being aware of what am I thinking, what am I feeling, what am I choosing, and what is the impact on others? Because mm-hmm. there's this, I work with quantum physics as well, and one of the physicists that I follow who's just brilliant in terms of understanding the spiritual nature and the deep things and the sort of relationship, and he talks about it's not about you, it's about you in the world and your impact, and he talks about it from a very quantum physics level, but how quantum physics is a law of thought. And and this has been a huge part of my work. And it's like the primary thing. You are aware not to make yourself primary is to make yourself understand your impact on others because that Mm -hmm. then it's that relational thing that is so vitally important. But I have to Mm -hmm. teach people that it's some some people literally it's like that part of I've got an app, I've got books, I've got techniques, I did it in therapy. And that was one of the most difficult things to teach Mm -hmm. people. And we see in the brain when we do the neurophysiology studies using QEEG, you actually can see when people are completely self-consumed, their brain goes into such high levels of stress mm, that they actually can't, yeah, they're, they're, they're wrong. You know, you have all these different energies flowing in the brain, alpha, beta, theta, all that sort of thing. But the high beta flows when people are very self-involved. So like, probably people being very narcissistic without the empathy, being all my, me, myself, and I, it's all about me, that you, you actually get way too much of the high beta, way too Everything goes, it's like instead of it being a wave in a sea, 
it becomes like a rapid or a waterfall. Right, right. So mm-hmm. it becomes very similar to an anxious brain. It's someone who's very anxious or ex- excessively anxious, but it blocks the clarity of thought. So mm-hmm. you don't really dig deep into yourself. So self-regulation literally goes. Because right, on, right. on your most deepest level, it's dynamic self-regulation and active self-regulation, mm-hmm. and the two have to meet. I mean, I'm just going off on it, but just underlying what you said, the, the, the science shows it. When you said you have to teach us, or this is what I honestly, I cannot. Yes. Thank you for saying that because it's and you have to, critical. And, it, and it, it is the most important thing you can teach early in life. I do. I think it's more important than any any other thing we teach a child. And I would add to that to what you just said. It's not just empathy and self-awareness, but it is also self-regulation. The ability to manage one's emotions, to feel in possession of those. It's the, and more than anything else, that you can regulate them because some people, when they can't regulate their emotions, they harm themselves. Some people, when they can't regulate their emotions, they harm other people. In narcissism, we tend to see more of the harm other people part of it. And other personality styles, we tend to see more of the harm themselves. So they're externalizing the narcissistic, they want to protect them. So they're very strong self-protection and they'll take it out on others and make others use others to make themselves feel good because that's a huge part of it. Let's circle back and let's let's define for people because people always love a definition of, of, of narcissism. How would you, I mean you've defined it already, but just let's give people a, a handle on it because you have a, a very nice way of explaining it. In its simplest form, narcissism really is pathological insecurity and it is characterized by lack of empathy, entitlement, grandiosity, arrogance, superficiality, validation and admiration seeking, dysregulation, challenges with managing negative experiences like frustration and disappointment, and hypersensitivity in the face of slights or criticism. Mm, sounds like some politicians you're describing. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's my point. And so these are the things that make up in the narcissistic personality style. It is a very antagonistic style because they are not able, for example, to manage frustration and disappointment. Once they encounter those states, they tend to take them out on other people. So they will rage, they will get angry, they will scream, they will insult. If they're having a good day, they actually can really keep it together well, which is why so many people get drawn in or seduced by them because they can be very successful. Remember, they, they are very, very goal-driven because their goals are how they prop themselves to the world. So they want to be the most successful, the most wealthy, the most famous. Those things matter a lot to them. So they're constantly driven in that direction. And so as a result of that, they do become successful. And then many people will excuse their bad behavior in the name of their success. Oh, she's the best dress designer. He's such a good actor. He really knows how to sync the, the shot in rugby or football or, so, or whatever, that they then make an excuse like, well, I guess, you know, when you're so good at something, no, I am sorry from where I sit. I actually do not think there's ever an excuse for emotional abuse. I don't care how good you are at anything. And frankly, I don't care about your life history. I understand that sometimes people who have had actually very difficult life histories, trauma, neglect, all of that can go on to to develop narcissistic personalities. I hurt for their history and I hope they get the help they need. It is not an excuse for abusing other people. I'm sorry. I I don't buy that. I agree with you. I agree with you. That's never an excuse and it's never acceptable. And so we've almost got this, we've almost, as you said in the beginning, we've enabled this type of thing. We're allowing this. We're allowing people that are acting like that and they're manipulative too. So there's a manipulation that comes. So the people feel like almost dirty when you've been around them, but you can't quite pinpoint it when you're in their company. We get so many emails with this being cleaning up the mental mess, you know, mental health podcast and our whole focus. Is you, we get so many people commenting on how do I deal with this? What do I do? How do I heal? How do I get away from? So let's talk about that now. So let's. So you've defined that incredibly well, and I think everyone. I mean, my in my head, I can just you know it's popping with all the the people that I can identify, and I think people are as well. What about the person who is the victim? What about societies that are the victim of of leaders that are narcissistic? In in some ways, the, the techniques are the same. Now, obviously, in a relationship you have to take a bit more ownership. Like all you can do in a society is vote for the other person. But you know what I'm saying? And then if the awful person wins, then you have to find ways to be able to take care of yourself, but you might even feel more powerless there. But in a relationship, when you've experienced narcissistic abuse, you've got to remember a narcissist could be someone's parent. It could be their sibling. It could be another extended family member. It could be their partner. It could be their boss. It could be their friend. 
So these are different kinds of relationships, obviously. If you come from a narcissistic family system, a narcissistic parent, mother, father, whomever, you are often more likely to choose a narcissistic partner when you go into adulthood, or at least an unhealthy relationship. Now, all of that said, so my point is like now you've kind of gotten bookends to this, but regardless of whatever the relationship is, number one, number one is that you've got to accept that the narcissist won't change because they won't. And as many people want to, I have seen, and when I say that, does that mean none of them will change? No, it doesn't. But it is so rare. It's like a lottery ticket. Somebody's going to win the lottery. I can all but bet it's not going to be you. Someone's going to win. And one day, maybe the person standing in front of me has the multi-million dollar ticket. But by and large, I'm pretty safe in saying the lottery ticket in your hand is just a piece of paper, right? And I play the lottery, trust me. But I think that the odds of a narcissist changing are very slim. Now, people out there listening and saying, well, this this sounds like me. Does that mean it's always going to be hopeless? No, it doesn't. But if you have a narcissistic personality style and you're identifying it, and you're willing to be self-reflective on, wow, I've hurt a lot of people with my behavior and I need to get my stuff together and I want to address this and I'm going to go into therapy and I'm going to address my history and I'm going to potentially address my trauma and I'm going to be mindful in every interaction I have and I'm going to catch myself and when I'm disappointed, I'm not going to... Ri- if you can do all of that, there may be a path forward for you. Absolutely, because there's a bit of, sorry to interrupt you, they've actually started making a choice. There's been a level of self-regulation, hasn't there? They haven't said, oh, and they have to push it. that's not me. And they, if you're feeling activated by this, if you're feeling, hey, that could be me, that's fantastic. Grab that. Use that guilt, that, almost that awareness to start. But even as I say that, I'm going to tell you the majority of people listening to this, if you have a narcissist in your life, you can, you can make a very, very, very solid bet on the fact that they're not going to change. That radical acceptance is essential to moving forward because the way people get hurt in these relationships and the way they get stuck in these relationships is because they maintain hope it's going to get better. They're fearful of what will happen if the relationship ends or they step away from it or they set a boundary. They feel guilty about setting a boundary or stepping away and they don't have information about the fact that this probably won't change. So all of those things That's are very get, powerful. Yes. And they get stuck. So once you start clearing the air, like I'm telling you now, and I tell my clients all the time, this isn't going to change. And I've had a unique perch on this, Caroline, because I have worked with some people two, five, 10 years, 10 years in, nothing's changed. And I'll say, I'm happy to go back to these early notes I took on this. And they'll say, no, you're right. And so they're literally, even with me at their side, I'm saying, mm, yeah, not going to change five years in. Mm, that's not going to change 10 years. And sometimes they even drop in and out of therapy. So they'll drop out for four years and they'll come back and the relationship is exactly the same. It doesn't change. By now, I'm sure you've heard of the dangers of artificial light, especially artificial blue light from our devices like phones and TVs. If you aren't familiar with what artificial blue light is and how it can negatively impact your mental and physical health, then I highly recommend you listen to my podcast, episode 114. Do you find you get those terrible headaches at night or after a long day of work at a computer? I used to get this all the time until I started using Blue Blocks glasses. The one company I trust to make the highest quality and scientifically backed blue light blocking glasses. Blue Blocks has a variety of lens options, so you can get a pair that suits to your most pressing needs, such as their Summer Glow Lens, which is designed for daytime use for those who work under intense artificial lighting and suffer from migraines, anxiety, depression, or seasonal affective disorder. Many customers have reported that these glasses have really helped improve their mood. Get 15% off your order today when you use the code DRLEAF at checkout. Just go to blueblocks.com and use the code D-R-L-E-A-F at checkout. The link and details will be in the show notes. So before we jump on, I wanted to ask you a quick question there because it's related to this, them not changing. Because I've always, I've always had the belief that you can 
anyone can change. And I think I'm hearing you say that they can't, but is it not related to the fact that we this the 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 just the environment that a narcissist creates is so empowering to themselves that it's almost like that it's being fed. So unless you remove all the feeding, the energy that's being supplied, the wealth, the attention, the the people that are being sucked into there, you're almost like you've got to isolate them and remove them from all those things. Does that not help them make the right choice? Don't you think so? Not at all, because I've seen too many narcissistic people go to rehab. So they get pulled away from their wealth. They get put in a room with someone else in a bunk bed and they might get them to stop using drugs, but they're still narcissistic. You know, I mean, the fact is, is that you, uh, you should be able to be compassionate, kind, reciprocal, mutual, and all of that, whether you live in a hut or whether you live in a palace. You see what I'm saying? So I think that, you know, it's the kind of thing where, you know, you've got to, I think that the person who's going to commit to the work commits to the work. And it is a hard thing to commit to because the majority of people can't identify it in themselves because it's, it's very much a, 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 it's very much a pattern where there's no self-awareness, right? So in the lack of that self-awareness, it's almost impossible to create change. And then what has to happen is that in general, narcissistic individuals do not have a good capacity for closeness, for intimacy, for empathy. And they also actually have contempt for other people. That's a big wall to climb to go from having contempt for people and then not having contempt for people. And they have contempt for all people and anyone who crosses them. You just have to cross. They'll like you if you like them. Otherwise, they, you cross them and they are. It, you know, it's funny. Narcissists often will be very, they will often worship people who have more than them. Wow, that guy's got a, his own plane and that guy's got that hot partner. And they'll, but they, they have contempt for them too because they're jealous of them. So there are no easy paths. Yeah, it's not, it's not enhancement. No. It's competition. No competition. And, and that's where it comes back to this core tenet. All narcissists want to win. It's always about winning, which is why arguing with them is a pointless exercise because their only goal is to win. It's never to hear your the only point goal view. is to win. They don't want oh, to hear your point of view. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's why divorces with them are very expensive and awful. And people say, why don't they just, and that's because they want to win. And in their mind, getting this much money or this much custody or this much whatever, that's winning. In business deals, they will just break people down. And like, why are they making so difficult? Because they need to win. And whatever winning means to them, it may not even be what I would think was winning or you think is winning, but it's what winning means to them. And many times it's the humiliation of the other person. It's the destruction of the other person. Yes, it gives them a lot of satisfaction. Mm, so and they're feeding off all that toxic energy kind of builds mm-hmm. them up. And- yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, because it's very much an insecurity, right? If I'm insecure, then I need to know I'm better than you. Right versus we can both be great. If I'm secure, I want you to succeed. I want me to succeed. That I would not, I wouldn't view it as a competition. I just want everyone to do well. That's not how they think. So you have to understand how it is they think. And once you see that, you're like, whoa, this really is a pattern. You can engage in the radical acceptance and say, this is it. It's never going to be but this. And that's the first step that you, you were that's saying. The that's first the first step. thing is accepting the identity shot, basically. Yes, it, the it identity is, is not, there's nothing about, they don't really value themselves unless they can destroy someone else to get their value. Right. But this, and they're not going to change. Then the second piece is re- re- realistic expectations. So many people say, I can't leave this relationship. It's my parent. It's a spouse where I can't leave for financial reasons or religious reasons or whatever. I can't leave this relationship. Okay. And I say, Part of how people get destroyed in these relationships is they don't see the situation for what it is. If you recognize that this person is always going to be insulting, is going to throw tantrums often, is going to be critical, is often not going to tell the truth. Once you have that realistic expectation, you have a toolkit to deal with them. So if I'm dealing with a narcissist who's chronically deceitful, I'm not going to trust them. So I'm not going to share certain things with them. And I'm going to ask for everything in writing. And if I'm dealing with a narcissist who's very unempathic all the time, I'm not going to share my feelings with them because that's not going to be good for me. You have to learn your audience and you have to have realistic expectations. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be a satisfying relationship, quite the contrary, but at least you're not going to keep getting yourself slapped across the face. Number three, I tell people, don't explain yourself and don't defend yourself because People do this with narcissists all the time. No, 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 no. Let me give you my point of view. No, let me help you. No. Don't explain and don't defend. The less is more with them. The more you talk, the bigger the hole you're going to dig yourself. The next thing I tell people, 
Don't try to solve things. Everyone tries to fix it. Oh, you know what? Let's try it this way. Let's do it this way. They're never happy. They're chronic malcontents. They're always unhappy. So no matter what you try to fix or say or do or move the sun in the sky or bring the moon out of the sky, it's never going to be enough for them. So don't try to fix anything. Because that in itself will totally drain you and, and exhaust you yes, and break yes. you. And that's how people destroy themselves in these relationships. Maybe if I lose weight, maybe if I cut my hair, maybe if I make more money, maybe if I buy them a house, maybe if I buy them a car, maybe if I get a better job, maybe if the kids were better behaved and on and on and on. And the narcissist is like a beast that no matter how much you feed it, it is never content. Wow. That is, that is unreal. Okay. So the three things, except that they're not going to change. Have realistic expectations of them. Don't defend and explain yourself. And don't try to fix it. Don't try to fix it. And if the people are saying that, it's going to stress that if they can't get out for, as you said, religious reasons or financial reasons, then to try and get a toolbox that you recognize, like if they, what their manipulations are is not to feed those. And, and don't, and here's the last one. Don't personalize it. This isn't you. This is them. Like this is, they are never going to be content. A lot of people will say, maybe if I did something more, then they'd be happy. I'd say, not you not anyone. And a lot of people say, oh, if I let this person go, they're going to go meet somebody else. And that new person's going to make it work with them. I say, nobody's going to make it work with them. And this person's going to go through the same thing. thing. Same thing. And if you can be patient and let that next person go through the same thing, you get a little bit of self-satisfaction and saying, look, the next person went through the same thing. So when you have people that come into therapy and you say that there's these gaps and they drop off for four years and come back, you've given them these guidelines and they've chosen to stay in and they come back and they're even more broken. That's obviously why they're coming back. Do you find they eventually leave or do people get stuck? What is the general trend? There's 50% of people leave these relationships and 50% of people stay. So, And I say that very because a lot of people stay and a lot of them have shame for staying. And I say, don't have shame. I would never judge a person for staying in one of these relationships. But then I say to them, you need to be aware of two other dynamics. Dynamic number one is something in psychology we call cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is a model where many of us learned this as a child when we learned the Aesop's fable of sour grapes. The fox couldn't get the grapes. He kept jumping and jumping. And there were beautiful, big, juicy grapes. He couldn't get them. And then he, he gave up and he walked away. Those grapes are probably sour. Anyhow, for, for all of us, our brains don't do well managing incompatible, incompatible pieces of information. So we make rationalizations to make them compatible. To I've spoken that. a lot about that on this yeah. part. We have these cognitive dissonances. Yeah. yeah, so cognitive dissonance is what keeps most narcissistic relationships together. You know, wow. That's so that's it. what keeps them. They keep justifying. They justify and justify because it's sort of like, oh my gosh, I can't afford to leave this relationship, this person, and then this person's absolutely awful and, and emotionally abusive and throws a tantrum every night, they might say something like, they do have a very stressful job and we do have a lovely home. Boop, now you've, you've taken away the inconsistency. And you do that for long enough. The whole relationship is built on excuses. But then there's a second piece that we call trauma bonding. Trauma bonding really speaks to how intergenerational this is, right? Things like invalidation and neglect and insults and emotional abuse those start, especially in a primary relationship when you're growing up, if that's the relationship, then that becomes love. Then as you go into adulthood and someone brings invalidation and neglect and all of that, it's the, bond, the trauma bond is that you justify it. Abuse equals love and you justify it. So it, it's very much related to the cognitive. That's how people get stuck. And they really, really, really find themselves that they, and intellectually they'll say, if this was my friend, I tell them to run away from this relationship. They would tell, they'd say, intellectually, I know I need to go, but I am stuck in this. And I say, I don't want you to feel like there's something wrong with you. Trauma bonding, cognitive dissonance, this is very real. So, because the cognitive dissonance is he's screaming at me, he's screaming, I need the money. So, I'm going to rationalize why he's screaming at me, he's under stress. Instead, I'm telling people, tolerate the dissonance, okay? Is that right now you're stuck because of the money. Let's make this a wake-up call of, are there, are, like, I've seen people who are in these abusive relationships who slowly, one or two courses at a time, finish a training program. They, it's, it's laborious and it's painful. 
but they're building the bricks to get out. Instead of saying, this person has no right to scream at me and I'm in this because I am, I can't financially afford to leave it. If you allow the dissonance to remain, you also might start coming up with solutions instead of just rationalizations. So there's a massive difference there. So instead of rationalizing and then just passively accepting and becoming a victim, you actually say, this is bad. I don't have enough money. This abuse is wrong. I'm accepting this. I'm acknowledging this. I'm embracing all this toxic all these terrible feelings and that I'm going to use to drive that energy to actually get a, find a way out and do those courses. Because I, I teach a lot and I show my work as well, my research, that energy can't be, the energy's never lost, basics, physics, principle. It gets transferred. So you're either going to transfer that energy into maintaining the victimization, which then goes against every physical, all the basic, your, your brain's not wired for that. You can't, so it's going to create a lot of damage neuroplastically in the brain, in the physiology, in the mind, the whole thing. Or you can take that and accept it so it's still painful, but you're not pushing it back down again. You are actually getting it out and it's very painful and there's tears and there's and there's talking and there's talking to other people but you're also using that energy now to you redirecting it in a very positive sense even though it's very painful and hard and but it's healthy pain because it's moving you forward it is exactly and and the fact is that that is i'm telling people i understand that dissonance is uncomfortable i really really do but it is that is it's necessary because then you can say like yep not okay yep there's a money problem and so, and then that will be Now you have the problem. You've identified the yeah. problem. You have it out in the open. There's a lot of neuroscientific research. Also, what some of what I do is, well, a lot of what I do is when you, when something's in the non-conscious mind, which is the biggest part of us, you, it's there, you know about it, the cognitive dissonance or the truth or it should be, et cetera, et cetera. But you, until you consciously accept that, until you bring it into the conscious awareness, it's not malleable. So the physical structure in the brain is only going to be changed once you take the conscious, deliberate, intentional mind action. So you have to be consciously aware yes. to then... And that weakens. So neuroplastically, we see a weakening of the actual proteins in the brain that actually hold the vibrations of that information, which is the thought, which goes into, you can get the whole physiological explanation. So it's got to be, it can only, it only changes and becomes malleable once through awareness. And that's why awareness and self-regulation are so vitally important. And that's what you're saying in this. And the other thing, don't you think that a lot of the narrative today is around suppression of pain? You know, as soon as you, the whole biomedical model, as soon as there's any pain, you've got to squash it down. That in itself is the, is the wrong kind of advice is because, you know, it's almost like society is saying, the narrative is saying, there's something wrong with you if you're feeling anxiety. You've got an anxiety disorder. No, you don't. You're living with a narcissist. You need to embrace that pain and it's hard and it's going to make you anxious and depressed and all the rest of it. But that's part of the process. You'll move through that. It's going to be the energy you drive. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that one of the challenges is, is that because the mental health field does not traditionally recognize sort of this phenomenon of what happens to people in narcissistic relationships, right? It's real. And so they'll either write it off as an anxiety disorder, which feels generic, or they'll say it doesn't quite feel as severe as post-traumatic stress disorder, even though it has a lot of similarities to it. There's something very unique about people who are going through narcissistic abuse. They do experience some anxiety. They do experience negative mood states like depression, but they experience confusion, self-doubt, second-guessing, rumination, hopelessness, helplessness, powerlessness. Those are the standard pieces of narcissistic abuse. Now, what I've seen in my clinical work is with psychoeducation, teaching them about this pattern, we can lift a lot of that because they're saying, oh, it's not me, it's them. It's not going to change. And because believe it or not, telling people it's not going to change doesn't make them more hopeless and powerless. It actually makes them say, now I know what I need to do. In some cases, it's people who say, I got to get out of here. In some cases, it's people who say, I am going to have to give up putting any energy into this, recognize this as what this is, two people stuck in a situation and see if something changes and cultivate other elements of my life, my friendships, my work, my spiritual world, my volunteer world, my other extended family, whatever it may be. It becomes a wake up call that it's almost like I'm telling people, stop dropping the bucket in the empty well. There may be some other wells around where there's some water and at least go enrich your life. Because some people truly are, and I know that people are, there's people in certain parts of the world where divorce is viewed so negatively that to get a divorce really feels impossible. And I don't want people in those situations to feel hopeless. I'm saying that you need to no longer give any more energy to this. And so we teach people techniques like gray rocking, which is really becoming an entirely neutral stimulus. You don't really talk to them. You don't really engage with them. And it's in a very perfunctory way. How? How are you? I'm good. What's new? Yeah, no, not much. You know, did you like that movie? I thought it was interesting. 
And it's very you don't talk about anything controversial. Block, you don't let them get into you. You become boring. And so they at first they get angry because they're not getting a fight out of you anymore, right? Because they like to win. Then they get bored. And if you're lucky, they'll walk away. So, you know, and then they'll go find some other source of narcissistic supply. That, but many times they'll say, What's wrong with you? You're so uninteresting. And say, Ah, I guess I'm just having a down day or that, you know, you just, you have to really fortify yourself. And it's a shame we have to put so much energy into these relationships. So, and what you were talking about is uh, we waste also a lot of time steering away from negative emotions. And that's actually one of the tenets of acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a very popular model psychotherapy world now. And when I'm working with clients, one thing I do notice is, is that if I push them towards radical acceptance, it makes them very uncomfortable. Like, whoa, that's really bleak. And I say, I want you to stay in the bleakness for a while. Every time you turn away from it, you're putting yourself back in the relationship. But if you could stay with it and experience it and not be scared of it, you might say, okay, I'm going to come out the other side and might feel like you might be able to make more change. Oh, no, I love that. Yeah. And I, I see with, with, with the research we've just done now, just my most recent trials, we see on day 21, we see a, a gamma peak. So we see learning taking place. So people are saying that they've pushed through that terrible pain because it's really hard. Those There's definite days, 4, 7, 14. You know, it's interesting how you, when you go through the pain, accepting the pain, dealing with the embracing and so on, where you, you get to, there's a point where people are starting to see a reason for the pain and and it's I'm starting to get a handle on this, and then there's then it's much easier thereafter. So there's a lot of a science behind that to help people. And I find just telling people that and just showing them sometimes the brains, the the brain imagery and the change in the blood, which is not mean, indicative of mental health, but your blood will follow what's going on. The main thing is your mind. You've got to make that decision to embrace, but your brain and your body will follow suit. And it's just nice to have that reinforcement. So I'm just I mean I'm just undergirding what you're saying. I t- t- to be able to push through that and to protect yourself in the process of of all that negative but they get bored that's fascinating when they get bored and then they'll maybe move away or if you if you give you react they're going to, you're going to feed back to them again because they're looking for the reaction they're looking for the reaction it's called baiting and they're also narcissists are novelty seekers so believe it the, the research definitely suggests that they're very dopamine motivated they're very much reward sensitive as we call it so people who are reward sensitive are more prone to addiction gambling high-risk activities because they're reward sensitive people who aren't reward sensitive aren't nearly as drawn to those activities narcissists by definition are very reward oh, that, okay two quick questions i know we this this is just the beginning of a such a long conversation. Yes. So we, we are just, I'm just respectful we'll of your time. Again. Yeah, we'll have to do it again because I, this, it's been amazing. I know that a lot of questions we get is what causes it? Why does someone become a narcissist? And I know that's a very difficult question to answer, but do you have some sort of an answer you could give for that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very developmental. I mean, a lot of people think, isn't it nature? Isn't it nature? I, we were, I was raised in the same home as someone and my brother is a raging narcissist and I'm not. And we have the same parents and we're a very sim- similar history, all of that. There is a small temperamental piece to narcissism. There's no two ways about it. And likely it's a sort of a hypersensitive personality style, temperamental style. These are the kids who, even from a very young age, are more difficult to soothe. They are, they tend to act, you know, they tend to get more fussy. It's harder for them to transition from activity to activity. I think that there's a slightly more intense temperament. Now that's not to say that all intense temperament children go on to become narcissistic. But it definitely might be something that might be sort of a temperamental loading. But this pattern of narcissism is very developmental. The belief is that at one level, it might be a manifestation of a child who's both overindulged and underindulged. The overindulgence may be they're spoiled, they're given too many toys, they're given beautiful vacations, and there's no limit set on them, and they can do what they want and go to bed when they want. And it's, it's very chaotic on that level. And then they're underindulged when it comes to their emotional world. So their parents are always like, here's a gift, here's a new iPhone, here's let's go to a theme park. But then when the child is having a real emotional experience, the parent is nowhere around to teach them how to soothe themselves, to listen to them. So they're impoverished when it comes to their emotional worlds, but they're almost overfed in this other place. Another way, another pathway to narcissism is, is neglect and trauma. We do know that in the face of trauma and neglect in the early years, this is a person 
who then becomes relatively can become, doesn't always, but can become not only dysregulated, but not have the opportunity to develop that empathic sense. Now, here's where it gets tricky. A, sig- a significant, if not substantial proportion of people who have trauma histories don't go on to become narcissistic. So it may very well be that that trauma then comes up against a certain kind of a temperament. But we do see that there are often these sorts of very deprived, neglectful histories sometimes in the histories of narcissists. Another pathway is that it's learned. They have parents like this. They model and mimic the entitlement. There can be a lot of privilege. They may have grown up with a lot of privilege. Now, that's not to say all people who grow up with privilege want to become narcissistic. They don't. But it definitely, it's almost like a horse race, right? If you show me some things about this horse, I might be more likely to bet on it becoming narcissistic. And then we have a final piece, which is society. So you've got these kids who are growing up in a world where who's the best ballet person? Who's the best soccer player? Who's getting the best marks? Who's going on to the best university? These kids become trained monkeys who are performers, who are trying to get trophies and adulation and awards. And if their parents are really egging them on rather than nourishing their emotional worlds, you can certainly do both. You can cultivate your kids' strengths, but to turn them into, again, these trained ponies and monkeys where they're just about the accomplishment, there is a risk in that also because what they learn is that they're only as good as their exterior, that their interior world doesn't matter. So it's a mix of A mix of everything. Of yeah, that nature, the nurture. Yes. Yeah, and nature, nurture, and I factor. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and also we know there's different kinds of narcissism. So the covert, more victimized narcissists, they tend to have the more trauma neglect histories. The more grandiose narcissists tend to have more of those, you're a spoiled child histories. You see what I'm saying? So part of it is how it shows too. Yeah. Very, very clear. And this is this is this is fascinating. This this is outlined in your your work and your books and things. My People book. can learn more it's about this here. Yeah. All in your book. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant book. Okay, one quite last quick question, if is that okay with you? You wrote a, you wrote an article on the popular series Dirty John mm-hmm. that yeah. was fascinating. Could you just touch on that? You wrote a blog on that and it was just fascinating. So Dirty John was, a, for those of you who, I mean, Dirty John is actually, I think, the most popular podcast, one of them, if, if not in history, definitely one of the most downloaded of all time. And it started as an LA Times series and partnered podcast. And I actually even had the experience to get to know Deborah Newell, the, the woman at the center of the story, her and I have met and talked and all of that. Really fascinating to hear her point of view on this. And when I read the story, it was wonderful to then to go on to get to know her because I'll be frank with you, it really it humanized it in exactly the way I wanted it to, which was, I think the biggest her takeaway from the Dirty John story is all of us are vulnerable to this because we, t- we make up the narratives we mean, need to make up to draw these people in. Once you tell the story backwards, we all say, of course, I would have seen the red flags, right? But while you're in it, it, it speaks to how sinister and how quickly these things can happen. And this is why I tell people one of the most important pieces of work any of us can do is to check your narrative. Make sure that you're no, not so lost in your narrative that you don't see things for what they really are. But with Dirty John, he was textbook. The deceit, the relationship moved too quickly. He isolated her. His past didn't make sense. He was, it was, it was almost too much too quick. It was a very classically love bombing relationship. And what a lot of people don't understand about the chronology of the Dirty John relationship is that it actually, it only took her a couple of months, only about two, maybe three months before she saw how sinister this was. And then she sort of was like then almost having to like live in secret and move around. And then she did take him back. And a lot of people saying, what kind of fool would take him back? In the majority of these cases, people go in and out and in and out of these relationships. It's so easy to sit there and be in judgment of her. I have to say, I think a lot of people would have done it and have done it. So I was shocked by how many people judged her harshly because I'm thinking, oh my goodness, so many people do this. And it was, it's the norm of what I saw. So I think that it was obviously a tale in the extreme, but it was, it was actually the tale that happens to so many where the red flags are there. People say, oh, we got engaged after two months. And I'm like, what? That's too quick. And they'll say, yeah, well, he had to move from another country. And I'm like, too quick. But if he didn't, then we would end, the relationship would have ended. And I'd say, so what? You see what I'm saying? So it's like, you see, I mean, then it's, and, and I said, if this relationship had wings, that you didn't have to rush it. 
And that uh, the narcissists know when they, they're it's almost like they, they think of people are like butterflies that they're trying to trap under glass and trap. And that they, they, that's why they often speed up relationships. Let's move in quickly. Let's get engaged quickly. Because once they have you locked down, not only are you a more consistent source of supply, then they don't have to put as much work into the relationship. That's fascinating. I've enjoyed this so much. I feel I could talk to you for hours. It's absolutely fascinating. Your grasp on the subject and just on life in general, because there's just so many life lessons that you've actually given us today as well. And I want to thank you for you, for your work. I definitely have to please have you back again to talk more in depth about all these incredible things. And thank you for your time. And where can people find out more about you? So you can go to my website, which is at drramani.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-R-A-M-A-N-I.com. You can also please sign up for my YouTube channel. We actually put out new content every day. Now that the quarantine has begun, I think like, let's just keep, keep, keep people informed. And so that's just, you go to YouTube, Dr. Romney, subscribe to that channel. We have, we have a community of almost 250,000 people. And so it's an amazing, like you, just the community amongst the subscribers is amazing. I'm on Instagram at Dr. Romani, on Twitter at Dr. Romani, you know, on Facebook. So you certainly can come find me at any of those places on Instagram. We're regularly doing updates. And then I'm taking a little break right now because I have a family. My mom is not well, but when she's feeling better, and probably by early July, we do master classes and you can get tickets for those. And they're maximum of 10 people. It's very personal. And each other and those are on Thursdays and for more information on those you can either you can go to my website and you'll get information if, on how to sign up that's amazing well I'm going to we're going to put all that up in the show notes okay. and we also your book Dr. Romani is that 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 let me just make sure I get the title correctly don't you know who I am how to stay sane in the era of narcissism entitlement and incivilities that's an absolutely yeah. essential read I recommend that yeah. for everyone as well so all yeah. those links will be in our show notes Dr. Romani you've been wonderful it's been thank amazing you. thank you so much what an honor. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for the time and for getting to know you. I appreciate that. Thank you. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leith. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors.